You and I know that making smart financial decisions can be challenging. But in the 21st century, financial freedom is no longer just for the 1% wealthy. It is for you and me. The question is, how do we find time, avoid making painful mistakes, and find the best resources to help us reach our financial goals? Join me on my journey helping busy families figure out how they can gain financial confidence and clarity, get actionable tips, and learn from the best experts on how to stop trading time for money. It is now the time you started living your best financial life. My name is Anna Sherbunina, and welcome to the Money Boss Podcast. Emotional intelligence. We hear this topic a lot these days. And what does it really mean, especially when it comes to raising children who are emotionally intelligent? Simply stated, it is being aware and living healthy with your feelings. And so not just kids, but adults, because we all need to do some work on this. So I'm excited for my conversation with Dr. Stephen Hall, who is going to dive in deeper and share his experience of how he started to work with his patients on this holistic and integrative approach of healing and we're working on the feelings and understanding what they really are telling you is one of the important ingredients. And so his framework of three A's, awareness, acknowledgement, and ask is what he applies to start to do the work. We also make a parallel connection as to how all of this helps us be smarter financially, right? Because at the end of the day, that's what we want, not just for our children, but for ourselves all together. So please join me on this conversation. Hey, Money Bosses. Welcome back to the Money Boss Podcast. I'm so excited for our guest today. His name is Dr. Stephen Hall. He is an author of three books with most recent book, The Seven Tools of Healing. And he's a board-certified family practitioner with a mission since 1985 to help people heal. And today we're going to dive in deeper and explore the topic of emotional intelligence for our kids. And emotional intelligence sounds really sophisticated, but it's but it's more about teaching our children how to be healthy with their feelings. And this topic has really surfaced for me quite a bit recently as Liam and I and Yuri together entered the toddlerhood, right? So and Liam is two and a half, just about to be two and a half. And uh, we are really learning how to deal with his feelings, how to understand the feelings, and also for that matter, how to deal with our own, because sometimes it is not easy, or I should rather say it's hard. So uh, Dr. Stephen Hall, I'm really excited for our chat. Um, so welcome. I'd love for you to share with our audience how you became interested in the topic of, of healing and where there is a connection to the emotional intelligence, because I'm pretty sure there's a, a big connection, at, you know, to draw. Okay. Well, yeah, first, thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Um, yeah. So my, I have fairly strong roots in, in science. I have an undergraduate degree in chemistry and another degree in material science and engineering and a minor in physics. And so I was really interested in not just the, the uh, content of science, but also the process of science. You know, how, how is it that we know what we know? So you might think of that as the philosophy of science. And, and I went into medical school thinking that conventional medicine either had all the answers or 
were kind of hot on the trail and the answers with research. And I was kind of shocked to find that, that even my first year of medical school, I was meeting all these people that either medicine hadn't helped or they had found their own answers outside of conventional medicine. Uh, back then, that could be something as weird as changing their diet and eating better. <laughs> but um, uh, or seeing a chiropractor or whatever. And, and, you know, one of the most unscientific things a scientist can do is discard data just because it doesn't fit the current model, scientific model. And so I was meeting all these patients that people whose lives and healing process didn't fit the conventional medical model. And so instead of just throwing their experiences away and discounting them, I said, well, we need a better model, you know? I mean, think about one thing in your life that has no influence on your health. There, there isn't probably one. Right. So it just makes sense that we have a system of medicine that can take your entire life into account. Yes. The holistic, isn't, isn't that the word to use? The holistic yeah. way? Yeah. And, and that's gotten lots of different interpretations over the years. Um, so I, I use the word integral for what I do, integral medicine. Because it integrates not just all these different, you know, ideas from different healing traditions around the world, but it also integrates you. So it sees you as a whole human being. So mind, body, energy, spirit, um, social, society, and environment. All of these things you have to take into account if you're going to look at somebody's health and how to get them back on track to be healthy. And so quite early, I, I started seeing how important um, beliefs were. You know, the beliefs that a person held had a huge influence on their life. And, and then, so how do we help people like find these beliefs that are holding them back and, and release themselves from these, I call them limiting beliefs. And, and what I found was that a good way to track down the beliefs are to, to follow the feelings back. So, so it's almost like feelings are the messengers that are showing us how we're actually working inside. And, mm -hmm. and so many of us, instead of listening to our feelings, we want to tell our feelings what they can be and what they can't be. And my definition of addiction is feeling management. Mm -hmm. Whenever we're trying to say, oh, I don't want to feel this way, I want to feel that way, Whatever we do to do that is an addiction. And so it's not a coincidence that almost all the addictive drugs are mind-altering or mood-altering drugs. And a lot of the activities that are addicting are like all-consuming or engaging activities that can be distract, help us distract ourselves and that sort of thing. So, so, that, so right away I saw, okay, so feelings are really important there. They're the messengers bringing us information about how we work inside. And, and so then I thought, well, what? So we should be healthy with our feelings, right? So we can get this information. So I got thinking, well, what does it mean to be healthy with your feelings? So, and, and the first thing I saw was, I call it rule number one. And that says that all feelings are valid. And, and that's true because feelings are just a messenger, right? So, so does it really matter to you if UPS brings you your package or Federal Express brings you your package? 
No, not really. <laughs> as soon as it gets, as long as it gets there faster. As long as you get the package right, but yet they have really different colored trucks. You know, but we do that to our feelings all the time. You know, if our feelings is the messenger. Does it really matter if it comes in a brown truck or a white truck or a gray truck or whatever they're calling now with Amazon Prime and stuff? So, so. So that rule number one says we need to have equanimity towards all of our feelings. And that's not easy to do. <laughs> that takes a lot of practice because we definitely like some feelings and really don't like other feelings. Right? So, so then once you see that the feeling is just the messenger, how do you get the messenger to actually give you the package? And that's what the three A's are for. So the first A is awareness. You have to become aware of how you're feeling. And, and that was a real challenge for me because when I first started looking at this stuff, I didn't know it at the time, but I had like this thick filter in my neck, for example, you know, and some, some feelings could come through, but certain other things weren't even coming through. And, and so I was able to repress a feeling before I even knew I had it. And, and it's hard to work on something if you don't know you have it. So, so I had to really work on, well, what is that filter? What are the, you know, this, this process in my mind that, that can catch a feeling and, and, and sidetrack it before I, it even reaches my conscious mind. You know? And so, so working on awareness and, and a similar word for awareness is mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of talk nowadays about the importance of mindfulness and, So, but just being mindful is, is really important, but it's not enough. So then the second A is you have to actually acknowledge the feeling. You have to admit the truth of it. Like, okay, yes, I really am feeling this way. So, so you never have to say, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way. The fact is you are feeling that way. Where'd that feeling come from? Let's explore this a little bit. You know? And so the third A is once you, um, you're, you're aware you're feeling a certain way, you've admitted it to yourself, so you're not, so, so the nice thing about that acknowledging the feeling is it undoes any repression or denial or wanting to sweep it under the rug. So that's, that's what undoes the addiction, you know, trying to avoid the feeling. And, but then the third day is you look the feeling right in the eye and say, okay, I feel you, I'm experiencing you, Please take me to your roots. So you ask the feeling to take you to its roots. Where did you come from? Another way to think of it is, you know, what belief in me spawned that feeling from that input? So, so for example, your friend says something to you, and that brings up a feeling. I call relationships feeling generators because <laughs> they're out here. You know, Anytime you interact with somebody, it's going to bring up the feeling, right? And, and so you can look at that and say, okay, this is what my friend said, and this is the feeling that came up. What, what lens am I carrying? What filter am I carrying that created that feeling out of that input, right? Mm-hmm. So two people can hear the same political speech and come away with really different interpretations of that speech, right? It's got this, the same sound waves are going in their 
here is the same photons are going in their eye. How do they get such different interpretation for that speech? Because we all have our own unique lenses, right, to interpret that input. So, so that's what we're talking about. Let's figure out what our own lenses are, what our own input is, uh, or what our, I call them, um, well, I usually call them lenses. In psychology, they call it your structure of interpretation. You know, it's whatever goes on in your psyche to interpret your input, your sensory input, your thoughts, that sort of thing. And so that will generally lead you to those lenses that you're peering through to see the world. And, and those lenses are basically made up of what you believe. Mm -hmm. So that then leads us to beliefs. And, and once you uncover a belief, then the question is, um, is that belief really true? And usually just asking that question is enough to get the belief to become, to, to align itself to truth. Otherwise, you can ask, well, well, what would my heart say about that belief? Or if you're so inclined, you might ask, well, what would God say about that belief? Or what would spirit say about that belief? And, and that helps you compare what you believe with like a higher overarching spiritual truth. And then what happens is you can put that new higher belief back into your unconscious mind and it can become the new lens that you peer through the world at with. And so then the next time your friend says the same thing to you, a whole different feeling comes up. And that's how you know your perceptions have shifted or changed. And, and so the ability to do this work, the ability to do this for yourself, because you've got this constant stream of feelings all day long. right? So the, the ability to actually take the feeling and get the information that's buried in that feeling and use it to help yourself that's a really important skill to heal. And so imagine if your children could grow up already being like really adept at that skill. Yeah. So, so in, in your, and you have, I know you have a training course that you've put together um, for parents called strong foundations course um, and where you spend quite a bit of time um, addressing, you know, these kinds of things, because it, you know, in understanding that like, the different phases of life, right? Like as right. kids grow up and, and, and I'm facing one of them right now, right? Or as, as widely known, the toddlerhood, the terrible twos or whatever the, the name is. I didn't really understand what it meant until we started to, to be in that phase. So how, um, let's talk a little more about how, how do you approach each of the phases? Because it's not just when they're toddlers, right? It doesn't stop right. um, the, the work. there. Yeah, <laughs> so the, the class actually, what, what we were hoping to do with the class is to help parents get a kind of a larger view of parenting and, and taking this newborn baby to a functioning adult. You know, that's the job of the parent, right, to help with that, that transition. And, um, and so the class does start at prenatal, it goes all the way through age 18. And, mm -hmm. and it looks at each of the, the developmental stages. We broke it into, you know, zero to one. So, so how can you be with that infant in a way that helps them. Uh, I mean, the job of the infant basically is to learn trust. Right? They're either going to feel safe or they're not going to feel safe, <laughs> depending on how they feel responded to. So, so infants don't know how to uh, manipulate you to get their needs met. Their, their needs are just their needs. 
And so I say you can't spoil a child before a first year of age. Just meet their needs. You know, they're hungry, feed them. If they're, they're wet, change them. You know, it's like, um, so that's that's the job of the parent in that first year is to just be really present and, and meet that child's needs. Now, once they move, once they develop language and, and can walk around a little bit, that's when they start saying, hey, I'm an autonomous person. Because I don't think that baby can really tell they're a different person from the mom. You know, and they're so technical. You read, you read the baby's mind. It's a really amazing connection that you have. But then they they start walking around and realize, hey, I can actually can, um, have some volition here. <laughs> I can have some power here. And, and that's when they start to say, mine, and no, and, and those sorts of things, right? And what what that child needs, and but yet they're still very egocentric. The whole, the role of the, the toddler is to have the whole universe revolve around them. And, um, and, and they see everything through what they need, right? They can't really take your needs into account. <laughs> it's, it's all about them. And, but yet they're developing language. So you can start to help them learn a vocabulary for their feelings. Like, oh, I see you're really upset by this. Or I see you're really angry about this. Or, oh, you look really sad right now. And, and you can start to help the child have a language and then you can say, well, you know, how, how do you feel about this? And, but what toddlers really need, I think, developmentally, is they need really clear, um, firm boundaries. And we made this mistake with our first child. We tried to be very, you know, egalitarian and give her lots of choices and help her be involved in decisions. And, and she just went berserk. And we couldn't understand why she's so angry all the time, acting out. And and then it hit us, well, you know, she can't choose amongst five different things. Let's give her a choice of two things. You know, okay, it's time for your bath. Do you want your bath with bubbles or without bubbles? Mm-hmm. You know, and we don't say, do you want to take a bath? Because that gives them a chance to say no. Right? So you say it's time for your bath. You want which which bath toy do you want to, to take with you? Pick one, and then off you go. So, um, but having really clear boundaries. Now it's really important to be be reasonable in how many boundaries you set. Too, we've had friends that they had like twenty different boundaries for their toddler, and it was driving them crazy trying to uh, enforce all of them all the time. You know, like don't eat in don't eat in the living room. All kinds of things, and and we basically said, you know, one boundary is don't run out in the street, right? And right. Um, another one is, you know, you, you treat your siblings with respect and treating animals with respect, and um, and then we had another one that that you know, picking up your toys is part of playing with your toys. And so if you're going to play with your toy, then, then that means you can't pick it up afterwards. It's built in. It's part of it. And, and then you have to kind of, you know, re- remind them a couple hundred times a day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and eventually it sinks in. <laughs> so, <I hope> so. <laughs> yeah. So, but they're, um, they're, they're playing with um, identifying themselves. You know, who am I? you know, separate from my mom, 
got object permanence now so that when you're, they can't see you, they know you still exist. Um, unlike the, the baby, you know, and, um, so it's, it's really a matter of, of letting them know that however they're feeling is okay. Even though, and their feelings are really powerful. Um, I think that even at a toddler, you can start to say, it's okay to feel this way, but it's not okay to behave this way. Mm-hmm. Really make a distinction between feelings and start to make that distinction uh, because they usually their feelings drive their behaviors, like one-to-one correlation, right? And, mm-hmm. and they need to start learning that it's okay to feel this way, but it's not okay to act that and, and I think that's really important because so many of the adults I worked with in my practice, what they learned as a toddler was to get a hold of their behavior by suppressing their feelings. Mm-hmm. So they learned how to really repress their feelings in order to for their behavior to fit in with the family, for example. And, and then they have to learn all over again how to get back in touch with those feelings that have been had to lit on for so many years. And um, so if you cut off feelings, you're basically losing information about yourself. It'd be like tearing your map in half and throwing half of it away. Well, what if you have to go over there? You don't have the map anymore. Right? So on this on this kind of a note, because it really, um, as you're talking about this, it really makes me think in the situations where like, it's chaos and Liam is screaming or he wants something and I can't get him to do it. Like at some point, my feelings start to take over, right? As a parent. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you're talking about like, okay, you can't suppress your feelings and, you know, literature or things that I've read is like, okay, you got to be calm. You got to, you know, you, and even though inside you're like screaming and like, you want to, you know, kill this kid. Like I, I told you for the hundredth time, you know, time to go or time to turn off the TV. How, like, how do you learn to balance that? Because you're an adult now, right? You're, right. I mean, is there a difference, right? Because right now it seems to me that the younger, the, the, the you know, the child, it is the easier to t- teach these concepts. What about adults? Like, where, where do you well, do the work on yourself? And, and quite a bit of the class is about giving these skills to the adults. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you don't have it, it's hard to model it for your child. And right. so, so there we talk a lot about, Okay, so the first step is to just be really kind to yourself that that you have this toddler and they're waking out and you're at your wit's end, you know. So, and then learning how to um, be raging inside or fuming inside and don't bat an eye on the outside. Mm-hmm. And that's what they call detachment, actually. You know? and, and that gets misunderstood in, in Western culture, but detachment doesn't mean you're you're oblivious to your feelings it actually means you're fully aware of your feelings you just detach them from your actions mm-hmm. so you can have your feelings and and then you can choose your actions because if you're repressing your feelings there's a really good chance you're going to blow up and you're going to act in a way that you wish you didn't or you're going to say something you wish you didn't so if, if you're letting your feelings be themselves and you're aware of them, you're watching with one eye, you're watching your feelings, and you're really kind and open-hearted to yourself, you're having all these really powerful feelings, you're very unlikely to blow up and lose it with your kid. Right. right? True. True. So when you lose it with your kid, that's a dangerous situation. That's when babies get shaken. That's when kids get hit. 
right? And right. or you say something you wish you could take back, but you can't once it's out. So so you want to never actually even get close to that line. Um, and we talk about one little technique to do that is you you draw we call it a, a full you know f a u x a false line in the sand, and and if the kid pushes you over that line, then you act as if you're, you've already lost it. <laughs> and then, but you haven't yet. So you're still in control, but you're acting like it. And that usually calms down. Like they go, Oh, this is really serious. <laughs> I'm going to lose it here. And, um, but do it before you actually get to that point. And um, so that's one little technique that sometimes, but if you learn how to engage their cooperation, and and quite often, if you can affirm their feelings and let them know that you're working on it, because the other the other skill that they're trying to develop as a toddler is delayed gratification. So, like unlike the infant, they don't need to have their needs met right that second. They can they can wait a few minutes till you're off the phone, and they can wait a few minutes till you're done with the pan on the stove or whatever you're doing, right? So. So learning that, sort of gradually guiding them towards that delayed gratification. Um, but have you ever had the experience of really being heard? Have I had that experience? I'm sure I probably have. Yeah. So like, man, that, that person just really heard me. So how did that feel? Oh, it feels awesome. It, it felt understood. It felt um, taken care of, right? It felt the, I felt the connection to that person. Yeah. So imagine if we can give that to our toddler. Mm-hmm. Just let yeah. them know that you really hear them. And, and so you can say, I really hear you. I know you're really upset. And, and then what we recommend is don't say but, because but erases everything you just said right before it. Mm. Instead, every time you catch yourself wanting to say but, insert and. Mm-hmm. So, because if you say something like, you're really enjoying this television show, but it's time to go to bed. Yeah. Right? That's the typical. <laughs> yeah. It's time to go to bed. But, if, but imagine if you say, you're really enjoying this television show, and it's time to go to bed. Mm-hmm. You feel the difference in your body? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you're acknowledging, hey, you're really having a good time right now. And it's time to transition to the next thing. We need to do the next thing. Uh, the other thing that toddlers often need is some warning. Oh, about, warning about transitions coming up, right? Oh, yeah. One minute, or two minute warning, one minute warning, 30 second warning. I mean, they last longer than that, but it, it does work. I love those. Oh, my yeah, gosh. Yeah, warning. And so another thing, like, let's say you're trying to get out the house, right? And, um, and then you say, okay, it's time to get in the car. Which pair of shoes do you want to wear? Mm-hmm. And so what you've done is you've shifted them from resisting leaving the house to, okay, think about well, what pair of shoes do I want to wear? And then you help put on that pair of shoes. And um, so, the, so we go through all these kinds of ideas in the class and give examples and, and there's exercises for the parents to do. Um, and, the, and the idea is, to get some idea of what's going on uh, deeply with parenting, not just on the surface, but 
what are you really doing to nurture this, this little human being's soul? And, and keep that in mind as, as you're going through all the different stages of development. So, so each, of those, each of the ages, so we did the, you know, zero to one, one to three, three to seven. Um, there's developmental stages going on in there. And so we talk about those, and then we talk about how you adjust, you know, how you adjust how you engage their cooperation, how you adjust how you talk about your feelings with each of the different stages of, of growth. And so even if you, your kid's already 13, um, you could, you know, we encourage parents to watch the class from the beginning anyway. And because there's skills that, that you get built on each, each time. And, and you can also go back and fill in any gaps that, that might have gotten missed from different developmental stages as they were going through. So like one of the things you're doing as a parent is now that you've got a toddler, you're, you've got the invitation in your life to go back to your own toddlerhood and heal up any unfinished business from that period of your life. Oh, I totally do. And honestly, I, I don't yeah. remember much of it. You know, I, I, well, actually, the one thing I do remember that my grandmother um, used to say, I think she still says it until now, is that I was a really hard, uh, you know, child and I would throw these tantrums and I was really unhappy. And like for the longest time, I swear, I always thought of myself as being this horrible child. And only recently I was like, oh, my God, this is what it meant. This is why she she kept saying all these years that I was so, you know, so uncontrollable because maybe that's what stuck in her mind. And I was going through this toddler phase. Right. And nobody could understand me. I was like, I, I really had this epiphany one day, um, but I never I never told her that yet. Um, just because I'm not sure, you know, she can, maybe she can grasp, you know, this concept, but at least it made sense to me. So I'm, I wasn't all this horrible <laughs> to begin with. Yeah. And, and what you experienced is another thing we talked about parenting a lot is that labeling is disabling. Mm -hmm. So when you put a label, because, because one of the things about being a human being is we're basically hardwired to meet the expectations that are placed on us. And it turns out that the nonverbal expectations are the more powerful ones. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things you can do for your child, for example, is to, and, and I do this every night before I go to bed or as I go to sleep, is just hold this image of your child in your mind as someone who's perfectly capable and competent to live a really healthy, fulfilling life. Yeah. No, and, just hold, and you don't even have to see what, you know, put any more details on that but if you just hold that expectation my child's really capable and competent to live a healthy and fulfilling life they'll try to meet that expectation yeah but when you when you label your child as ADD for example and then the teacher reads that in their file at the beginning of the year how are they going to treat your child yeah and so how's your child going to behave yeah they all connect mm-hmm mm -hmm. Yeah, and so so instead of labeling, I think what's better, if you have to say anything at all, is is just use description. Mm -hmm. You know, like instead of saying you're a really good artist, you can say, Well, when I look at this picture that you drew, um, I see the sun, I see the flowers, and I feel really warm inside. Mm -hmm. So that gives a child a lot more information saying, Oh, you're a really good artist. 
Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. So, yes. But yeah, but so you got, you were probably just a normal, normal, imagine probably bright toddler. And, and some of that is actually like babies that don't want to sleep very well. It's, it's hard at the time, but that correlates with intelligence. So it's probably good in the long run. You know? mm-hmm. And um, so because you're so interested, you don't want to ever turn off because you might miss something. So interesting learning about this strange new world. But you were probably just this active, energetic, normal toddler, but they probably didn't want to be told what to do. And you got labeled that way. And then they held that vision of you in your head. And that's just going to reinforce you behaving that way because you're trying to meet that expectation. Mm-hmm. So. How- I was going to, I was going to connect a little bit this to like to the finances. That's always, you know, the, the topic on, uh, on my mind. And this is a financial podcast. Um, I, I did have a, another guest here recently and we talked about money mindset. And one of the things she shared with me was, um, I, I think it's a statistical, maybe it's a actual real, um, real um, situation, but, or finding that most of her or the, the, the brain's, in younger kids get developed by age seven, or there's like a stage, right? And maybe perhaps that's why you have broken your course into these different developmental stages. And so the the practices that family have um, around money, the topics they have, what they do with money, it may not be like real teaching concepts to kids, but like the real magic happens before age seven. Is this true? Is this what you see with your practice? And how do we connect to that that to these healthy feelings we're trying to teach these kids. Yeah, so that's good. So they call the first seven years of life the, the formative years. And, and the reason I think that happens is most of the major beliefs that, that make up our worldview are in place in our psyche by the time we're seven years old. Most of them, not all, but most. And then also I think what's happening when up to age seven is your unconscious mind is functioning like a tape recorder with the record button on. Mm-hmm. And it really only takes one experience of something to form a conclusion that could last a whole lifetime. And, um, but how many of us remember much of our life before age seven or age mm-hmm. five, right? Mm-hmm. So, so most of those beliefs that are making up our worldview, which makes us think this is reality, when really it's just our interpretation of reality, right? Um, well, we don't remember. And, and that's why we need our feelings to, to trace back to get that belief out of the unconscious mind, bring it over to the conscious mind where we can align it with higher belief and then it will just give itself for that. And so, um, so what's interesting is I've noticed this pattern too, that you know, kids that grow up in wealthy families, they have an easy time making money when they become an adult whereas those of us grew up with, with struggling parents who thought money was hard and they never enough well guess what we have a big struggle with money. <laughs> and um and i think a lot of that is the kind of what they absorbed by osmosis in that first seven years when their unconscious mind was just so open and receptive but um but yeah i think if if people believe that, you know, there's plenty of money to go around, you know, it's easy to make money, just, uh, you know, have to use your creativity a little bit or whatever. Um, if that's the belief they got raised with, and they don't have a lot of contradictory beliefs in their unconscious mind, 
then that's what their experience will be. These beliefs are amazing. They they have two jobs. So they're not just the lenses that we peer through to see the world, but they also are the gatekeepers of our creative flow. And that's why Goethe said, man is as he believes. As he believes, so he is. And that's true for women too, of course. And, and that's another saying that if you want to see, if you, know, if you want to know what somebody believes, just look at their life. Mm-hmm. Right? But then it turns out beliefs also determine to a great degree how your physical, physical body responds to your life experiences. And so literally it'll, it'll determine which chemicals your body makes. So there, Bruce Lipton wrote a whole book called The Biology of Beliefs. And he's a cell biologist, and he talks about how what you believe will literally determine the genetic expression of the cell. Mm-hmm. So it's not a, what you believe is not a trivial thing. And I think it's really important for your health and your well-being that you start aligning the beliefs with this higher truth. And 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 so what I realized is that you know, raising your children to be healthy with their feelings is actually really good preventative medicine. And I'm interested in keeping people healthy in the first place, not just getting them better once they're sick, you know. And <laughs> and so I really think that if as parents we can learn how to help our children uh, start to see their feelings as information, and and use that information to find out who we really are, and and make sure that who we are is aligned with who we are in our hearts not just who we are aligned in our egos, you know, who we are in our hearts, um, that we can be really healthy. Well, then it turns out that there's a lot of research coming out lately that shows, not surprisingly, that when, say, a, a team at a company is made up of individuals who have good emotional intelligence, those teams work better, they're more efficient, they're more productive. And so a lot of consultants are now recommending to their clients that they screen new hires for emotional intelligence. And there's like questionnaires they can give people to see where they are in that level of emotional intelligence goes through development, just like your body goes through development or just like your psyche goes through development. right? And, And then they even encourage that once you hire these people, continue to educate them on their emotional development intelligence and um so i think if you can raise your child to have a high degree of emotional intelligence in the first place they're going to have a real leg up in the world when they go to get a job and or if they want to be an entrepreneur uh and and lead other people imagine if they had good emotional intelligence to that i mean so so if you look at when there's a whoever when somebody's a, a problem in the workplace look at that person and see how they are with their feelings. Mm-hmm. They're usually a mess, right? <laughs> right? It's like they're acting out, they're blowing up, or they're projecting their stuff onto other people. They're not honest and sincere. They're often telling, telling lies or trying to do office politics. You know, a lot of times when people are the troublemakers in the office, um, they, they have problems with their feelings. So, I think if you can raise your children to be healthy with their feelings in the first place, your kids won't be those people. <laughs> They'll be the right. people. Who, 
And it certainly uh, plays a big impact as to you know what their financial success is, right? Whether you know how how all of that turns out, whether they're they have jobs and they work for companies or they run their own businesses and and, and kind of goes from there. So, yeah, and and that's what these surveys are showing is that emotional intelligence is probably more predictive of financial success than uh, cognitive intelligence. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So for the time we have today, Dr. Hall, um, what would you want to share with our audience? One last thought. We will share the link to your course in the show notes because I think everyone should definitely, at least whether you have kids or not, um, but, you know, look into this because there's so much, so much work to do as an adult um, ourselves. And I, you would probably agree that it's never too late um, to consider the topic. Never too late. But one last final thought for our listeners. Well, I think the most important thing is, the most important practice is to learn how to put yourself in this kind, open-hearted space at will. Because if you can do this work from that, I think of it like a platform you stand on, this open-hearted, kind, compassionate space, and then you turn and look at how you're feeling. And, and we'll run the feeling through the three A's, but you do it from this kind, compassionate place, then you're automatically going to align your belief with what your heart knows. So of all the, all the skills my patients, I, I, I teach my patients, I think that's probably the most transformational is that practice getting yourself in that kind of open-hearted space. And we talk about how to do that on the website. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Very much appreciate it. We will again share the, the link to your class and Yeah, everybody, thanks for tuning in. Hey, Money Bosses, are you ready to get your financial life in order? Once and for all, as soon as possible? Are you tired of living paycheck to paycheck? Do you often lose track of how much money you have to spend? Do you want to get your financial life together, but just don't quite know how? I am with you. I've been there. I've struggled through all of these. And I know you owe it to yourself. You owe it to yourself to get better. So why do you continue to struggle? I know you can get your own money in order. It took me years to figure out. It took me years of pain, struggle, frustration, anger. But you don't have to go through all of that. You don't even have to get a financial planning degree like I did in order to be successful. Allow me to present to you my Money Flow System, a free playbook of how you can automate your finances, even if you hate budgeting. After you download this free playbook, you will never have to worry about budgeting. And who likes that budgeting thing anyway? You will stop accumulating debt and create a bulletproof plan of how to quickly pay it off. You will be able to pinpoint exactly what your income and expenses are. You will never have to miss a single bill again and you will always always have a solid idea of how much money is in each of your accounts so head over to money-flowsystem.com to download my free money flow playbook a blueprint to streamline your finances in less five or five weeks guaranteed head over to money-flowsystem.com Hey, Money Boss, thanks for tuning in today. 
If this episode did help you, then please be sure to share it with someone else you think will benefit from it too. After all, smart financial decisions are for everyone. Uh, so don't be greedy. I hope I can help you even further by sharing with you how thousands of clients I worked with in my career over the last 16 years created their very own successful financial lives on their terms. It's hard for me to do this over an audio, and if you are ready for the next chapter in your life, then be sure to go to MainStreet-Money.com to get your free resource guide to help you begin correcting top six financial mistakes I see people make all the time, such as not having clear financial goals, not having a handle on spending or saving for the future, not knowing how to get rid of all the debts, and of course, not having a clear strategy or plan on how to protect your hard-earned money. Until next time, remember, you are the boss of your money.